0: In introducing the meta practice this afternoon, John spoke briefly about these four qualities of metta, of boundless friendliness, of compassion, of joy, and of equanimity. Qualities very, very central, very much at the heart of this the whole of this path. Now, my sense is that we we hear metta, or boundless friendliness, spoken of a great deal. We hear with some frequency a lot of teaching on compassion, some on equanimity. I think the one that we hear less about is joy. So that is actually what I would like to speak about this evening, the the quality, the place of joy, the place of joyfulness on this path and in this practice, and what difference it actually might make to us. And I want to just refer back again to something that the quote that John used this afternoon, because these these heart qualities are, as John mentioned, not separate and he used the quote of out of the soil of friendliness, grows the bloom of compassion, watered by the tears of joy, and sheltered under the cool shade of the tree of equanimity. Joy is deeply important in this path. Because what you experience in your practice, what we experience in our life, is again and again we are asked to find the courage to turn towards many layers of pain and suffering and difficulty in the world and in ourselves. And we're asked to learn to, to turn towards those in a way in which we're not crushed, not broken, That meeting with the difficult, the painful, without the qualities of metta, without the qualities of compassion and equanimity, without the quality of joy, those layers of difficulty can at times, I think, feel quite overwhelming. Joy is so important as we are asked to turn towards, with mindfulness, our own lives our bodies, our minds, our hearts, in which often much can feel to be imperfect or even broken. And without joy, interwoven with mindfulness, that meeting with imperfection, that meeting with the difficult, can actually, in my experience, lead to a certain kind of contractedness and a quality of identification. Without joy, turning towards the difficult can even seem to magnify the sense of, of self and the sense of other. What is the purpose of joy in this practice? It teaches us to gladden our hearts. It teaches us to bring qualities of spaciousness and ease into all that we meet. Now, like all of the other Brahma Viharas, I do not think of joy as a state, achieved as something separate and apart from other states. I think of joy, and in the talk this evening, I don't want to talk of joy only in the sense of the Brahma Viharas. I actually want to talk about the much bigger spectrum of joy as it's touched upon in this path. Joy, not as a state, but as a way of being present within all experience in the midst of sadness, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of loss, in the midst of the difficult, cultivating our heart's capacity for spaciousness, for balance, for well-being, for a sense of ease. In the Dhammapada, there's a verse, one of the early texts of the Buddha, there's a verse where the Buddha says, Live in joy in friendliness, even amongst those who hate. Live in joy in well-being, even amongst the afflicted. Live in joy in peace, even among the troubled. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment, knowing the sweet joy of the way. One thing I would like to emphasize, certainly in my experience, we cannot contrive joy. We cannot pretend joy. We cannot make ourselves be joyful. I think what we learn more in this practice is to make room for joy. To make space for joy. Now joy in this teaching is spoken of in many, many different ways. There is sensual joy, there is rapture, there is the joy of celebration and appreciation. There is altruistic joy. There is the joy that is found within the generous heart. There is the quiet joy found within the contented mind. There is joy within gratitude. There is joy in the awakened heart. There is the joy that is discovered in the falling away away of all that contracts and limits our heart and mind. Now this mind, this heart, that has the capacity and the potential to experience so much torment, so much struggle, so much irritation, so much alienation, so much conflict, is exactly the same mind and heart that has the capacity and has the potential to know profound levels of peace, of joy, of contentment, of gladness. Now the invitation in this path is again and again to find in ourselves the willingness to stop and to look very carefully at our heart and mind of this moment in a very honest way to look at our moment to moment experience and understand what is really going on and if we can do that we are actually begin to see our capacity for contractedness and struggle And we also begin to appreciate and to be able to see and nurture our capacity for gladness and for joy. Joy is not an accident. It's not something reserved for the elite few in practice. It's not something reserved for the karmically blessed. It's not something reserved for those who have perfect lives. It's not something reserved for those who have managed to bring about perfect conditions in their lives. Joy is a cultivation. It is about the way that we are present with all the events, all the sights, the sounds, the experiences, the events that arise in our bodies, arise in the world, arise in our minds. Here, we are actually asked to discover inner well-being and spaciousness of heart that can pervade all events and experience so central to this teaching, so central to this path, is to come to understand that the well-being of our hearts does not lie in the hands of conditions. That the well-being of our hearts, the gladness of our hearts, the well-being of our minds actually lies within the realm of our own understanding and not in the conditions of our lives. The path of joy, in my understanding, is as much an insight practice as meta is, or compassion or equanimity. Because as we look at this capacity for joy, our capacity for struggle, I think one of the questions that we really ask ourselves is that, what is it that smothers joy? What is it that suffocates, stifles our capacity, our capacity for joy? And when we begin to ask those questions, we can sometimes begin to see that we're not always the contracted, anxious, fearful, annoyed person we imagine ourselves to be. Rumi once said, Your grief for what you've lost lifts a mirror up to where you're bravely working. Expecting the worst, you look, and instead, here's the joyful face you've been wanting to see. Your hand opens and closes and opens and closes. If it were always a fist or always stretched open, you would be paralyzed, your deepest presence is in the very, every small contracting and expanding, the two as beautifully balanced and coordinated as birds' wings. Joy has a very direct relationship with metta. Because part of metta, of course, is to learn to stand near all things, But part of metta is also a capacity to see and respond to the goodness, to what is well in ourselves and in others, no matter how deluded or how confused we or others may seem to be. Metta also has the capacity to honor in ourselves and in others very much our shared longing for safety our shared longing for peace and acceptance and love, the very universal story of being a human being. No matter how confused or deluded the ways in which those longings may manifest. Even, I think, on a more essential le- level, joy begins with the meta of integrity of of ethics, the foundation upon which the whole of this path rests. Because we see that metta is so concerned with unraveling aversion. metta is so concerned with unraveling ill will in all its forms. They can be subtle, they can be gross, but wherever there is ill will or aversion, there is surely alienation. There is surely disconnection and separation. So we begin to see in those moments when we're really able to free our hearts, to free our minds from the waves of blame, of judgment, of condemnation, moment to moment, we begin to understand really what the Buddha at times said about ethics being words and thoughts and acts of metta. But this is what ethics is really concerned with. And why did the Buddha give so much emphasis to this? Because it's really about discovering the joy of a heart and a mind that is free from residues. You know how it is when you act or speak in ways that are kind of really compelled by aversion or ill will, or even sometimes when we even think in ways that are really compelled by aversion or ill will. There's a pretty big trail left behind, isn't there, of residues. If only I hadn't done that. You know, if only I hadn't said that, if only I'd been different in that moment, if only I'd been a little bit more accepting or less reactive. You can feel how residues chew around in the mind. They're like the paper, the styrofoam cups left after a party, <laughs> they just linger. They just linger, they just don't go away. And we can see how those residues so trouble the heart. And so when the Buddha placed so much emphasis upon e- integrity, it was as an act of kindness for ourselves. and actually in a, stab- you, know sometimes even referred to as the bliss of blamelessness. But having that foundation of integrity within ourselves is to have a foundation of kindness within ourselves. And this is the foundation and the fertile ground upon which joy. Begins to flower. It is a training in liberating the heart from residues. I often think a lot of this practice is a training in liberating the heart from residues. In the Dhammapada, you know, the Buddha very much put this into the realm of being a practice and a path. In the Dhammapada, it says it's a disciplined heart that invites true joy. And discipline doesn't mean oppressed or confined. It means the discipline of that dedication to integrity, the discipline of the dedication to live in a life free from residues. Now, one of the joys that is spoken of, and I think it's very important to mention this, is the realm of sensual joy. Buddhism has a very bad reputation for this. There is often the feeling that your path is more noble if you're suffering because that means that you're getting somewhere, you know, and you're getting to grips with the difficult stuff. And when you come on retreat, it doesn't always, at first glance, look to be the most joyful of all places. (coughs) And there can be that tendency in practice. I am all for taking this path really seriously. But there's something about not taking ourselves too seriously. You know, not taking ourselves too personally. Now, sensual joy has a place. Can you imagine a world without the beauty of art, of wonderful music? Can you imagine a world without laughter, you imagine a world without, without hearts that can be gladdened by the, the sound of a, a, a child delighted. Sensual joy is important. Sensual joy is very different than sensual craving. These are two different creatures. There is much to be said about being able to appreciate the lovely. We see it in nature, we see it in the faces of children, we see it in music and art and poetry, and we see how our hearts can be gladdened. This is important. It's not that this gladdens my heart, you know, because if we're truly miserable, we could be in the most delightful of environments and the heart would not be gladdened at all. But our capacity to appreciate the lovely gives us the confidence and the taste that indeed our hearts can be gladdened, can find that spaciousness, that sense of simplicity. I think sometimes the fear about appreciating sensual joy in this practice is you know, this fear that it's bound to degenerate into craving and clinging. Mm -hmm. Not so. Not so. At times, the quality of joy that is spoken about is the quality of rapture, pity. This is a quality of joy, of energetic joy, very blissful states of joy often associated with very deep concentration states, absorption states. And again, the Buddha cautioned over and over again about the dangers of just pursuing states and clinging to states as ends in themselves. Because as we know, concentration states actually like any other state will arise and will pass, they're born of conditions. But in my understanding, that does not make these very deep states of concentration unworthy. Why are they worthy? Because in these very deep states of concentration or absorption, there are glimpses, unshakable glimpses that they offer to us of the vast potential of our hearts to know an inwardly generated joy. And it is inwardly generated. It is the joy, it is an inwardly generated joy, not born of, of uh, you know, grasping or, or, or being successful in satisfying craving. It's an inwardly generated joy that has nothing to do about what we've managed to get rid of. It is the joy that is discovered and developed through a very, very deep collectedness of heart and mind—a heart and mind that is so, in these states of deep collectedness, so freed of fragmentation and distractedness, so freed from the power, the you know, the tendencies of obsession, the influences of the hindrances—that in these these deep states of collectedness, there is discovery of a mind and a heart that is truly a friend truly a friend a mind of ease a mind of tremendous gladness of happiness and i would just want to say again that this is something possible for all of us in this inwardly generated joy is important in another sense too because it offers us a genuine taste of inner sufficiency that there is nothing lacking, nothing missing. I mean, we can see how much in our lives we search the whole world for happiness. And yet, there is happiness comes too, but there's so little happiness that we can gain that compares in any real way with the joy that is inwardly generated. The impact or the implication of, that, of discovering that inwardly generated joy is actually to stop leaning on the world and demanding that it serve us happiness on a plate. It's to stop leaning on the world and saying, it's up to you to make me happy. Because we know that genuine happiness is actually born within. It has a big implication of shifting the whole tendencies of craving and identification. There is another quality of joy that is spoken of. It just gets better and better. I only want to talk tonight about joy. It's only a good news talk. (laughs) There is another quality of joy that is spoken of, which is about appreciation. The appreciation of ourselves, the appreciation of others. Martin Luther King, he speaks of this quality of appreciation, spoke of this quality of appreciation. He said, whether we realize it or not, each of us lives eternally in the red. We are everlasting debtors to known and unknown women and men. When we arise in the morning, we go into the bathroom and reach for a sponge provided for us by a Pacific Islander. We reach for soap that is created for us by a European. Then at the table, we drink coffee provided for us by a South American or tea by a Chinese or cocoa by a West African. Before we leave the house, we are already beholden to more than half of the world. It is helpful, I think, for us to pause again in our, again in our day and to know that this very life we live, no matter how it is, is the gift of many. I mean, of course, we can go through our days preoccupied with all that we don't have and all that we have never received. Joy is not a denial of the deep pain felt of not being enough, of not having received enough love or acceptance or support in our lives. Yet here we are in this moment, in the only life we can live. And this, in this moment, in this only life we can live, we are asked to choose moment to moment where we will make our home, where we are taking up residence in resentment, in envy, in blame, in insufficiency, or are we making our home in our capacity for generosity, for appreciation? Learning to offer that inwardly to ourselves, to the efforts that we make, the sincerity that we bring to the path that we are walking on. It's not an easy thing you are all doing here. You know, there are a lot of other things you could be doing with your time right now. You know, beaches in Antigua, I shouldn't mention that. (laughs) There are a lot of other things we could all be doing with our time right now. And yet, here we are. Here we are. We are always practicing something. I find this is really important to acknowledge, that we're always practicing something in this life. Every moment we are practicing something. And here we are doing all we can to plant the seeds of inner freedom. We see as human beings it feels like one of our primary inclinations is to perceive what is wrong, to perceive what is lacking, to perceive what is imperfect. We see when we look at our own mind how much we notice the the waves of craving and aversion that run through our day, all the tendencies that contract us, that close our hearts. Cultivating appreciation, cultivating gratitude and generosity relies upon us not so much succumbing to that tendency towards contractedness, but to learn again and again that we can open our eyes. We can open our hearts to being able to receive, being able to give. A friend of mine, a student, a few years ago on retreat, he suffered pretty major catastrophic kidney failure that over the last few years has severely hampered the well-being of his life. And I met him in the gym a few weeks ago And he told me about his, and I asked him why he was running so hard. And he says, I'm getting in shape for my transplant. He said, my brother has offered me a kidney. And I could just see the joy in his eyes. And I actually felt this remarkable sense of empathic joy for him. And I I said to him, what a remarkably generous gift your brother is offering you. He said, He says, I know this. And he says, You know, my brother's not even on a spiritual path. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather miss him. We may not be the recipient or even need such a gift. Yet on a very daily basis, we see that here. Our very life rests upon the kindness and the generosity of others. Just as our survival does. I think this quality of appreciation, this quality of, of, of knowing our interwoven, the interwoven nature of our lives, helps us to move into the language of us and the language of we rather than the language of me and you, or I and you. The teaching also speaks about the quality of altruistic joy, our capacity to celebrate the happiness and the well-being of others. It's not about being happy for somebody because they win the lottery or they get a new car. I think this would really trivialize this quality of joy. Altruistic joy is a kind of selflessness of joy. It is what arises when envy and covetousness and resentment really don't appear. I have a few phrases of this altruistic joy that I've borrowed from John. Thank you, John. Um, It's a translation from a Sri Lankan uh, work. It says, How wonderful you are in your being. I delight that you are here. I take joy in your good fortune. May your happiness continue. Now, when I first heard these phrases, I thought they were a little sugary. (laughs) And they sounded to me initially a little sentimental, something that you might feel when you see a cute puppy or your favorite niece. But then I thought about it, and I thought, actually, altruistic joy is not about sentimentality. It is about selflessness. When we are most... uh, Notice this. When we are most present in the presence of the wholesome, skillful, liberating qualities of heart and mind. When we are most present in in metta, in generosity, in spaciousness, in calm, in compassion, do you notice how the voice of self gets very quiet? It's really something to, to sense in your day that when really the skillful and the wholesome and the lovely qualities of this heart and mind are present, the voice of self, the volume of it, gets turned right down. And in that quietude, the gap or the divide between self and other also softens, becomes more transparent. And we are more able to see ourselves in the eyes of another. Also, notice in your day when the more unskillful is present, you know, when you're most tied up in aversion or anxiety or, or blame or judgment, any of those qualities. Do you notice how the voice of the story gets much bigger? And do you notice how the voice of self and the sense of other also becomes much more solidified? Now, in that presence of aversion or jealousy or, you know, blame, our tendency is to seize upon particulars, to seize upon the fragments. Someone sneezes. They're just a disturbing person. I'm not even quite sure why they're here <laughs> you know, in this mindful retreat. They sneezed, you know. They are a disturbing person. Someone inadvertently, for whatever reason we don't know, moves in front of us in the dining room, in the food line. Well, they're pretty greedy, aren't they? Probably do this all through their life, you know. It is a greedy person, you know. We see how the volume of self and the volume of other gets turned up and solidified. Now, sometimes the other that gets solidified is a part of our own being, that we seize upon something in ourselves, a fragment, a sliver of who we are. And in that seizing upon a fragment, we make it into an other, you know, a div- uh, you know. A jealous thought arises, you know. I've always, I'm such a jealous person, you know. We fall asleep on the cushion, you know, and I am the worst meditator in the world. You know, we bump into someone, I'm so mindless. You know, we seize, we make the something in our own being becomes the other and we seize upon a fragment, and we lose sight of the whole. What happens in doing that is that the window to joy is slammed shut, because I think joy rests upon our capacity to hold the whole, not the fragments, our capacity to hold the completeness of another complex human being, just as we learn to hold the completeness of our own being. We need to sense this in our practice. The more I and you there is, the less joy. Sense whether that is true for you. The degree of calming, the I and the other, the greater the joy. And again, the question arises that we are Oh, what are we practicing in this moment? Are we practicing our capacity to see the whole, or are we practicing some of the tired old habit patterns of our lifetime? And we have choices. More and more, this path teaches us that we have choices about what we're practicing in this moment. There is the joy of discovering what it really means to be present in our life, to celebrate, celebrate the fruits, the ripening of our practice. There's an almost eternal law that as our practice, our understanding deepens, so too will our capacity for gladness, for stillness, deepen. That as our understanding deepens, so too will our capacity to be at peace with all things, to be touched, to be delighted. As our understanding deepens, we begin to see suffering and the causes of suffering begin to fall away. We might find ourselves a little less impatient, a little less clinging, a little less judgmental, a little less lonely, a little less despairing. It's not always a linear process, but it is a path, and there is a joy in celebrating that falling away. There is a joy in celebrating the ripening of that understanding. There's a joy in celebrating our capacity to liberate the moment from greed and hatred and delusion. We have all tasted moments of joy in our life. Sometimes they're very, very fleeting, sometimes they last longer. But if we're to cultivate joy, I think as a practice, as an inclination of the heart, just as we would cultivate metta or cultivate compassion as inclinations. Perhaps we also need to ask ourselves, what is it that stifles joy? What is it that leeches joy from our lives, from, from our hearts? Sometimes, you know, the first thing is that we may just be too full to be touched by the quiet whispers of joy, that they're drowned out by the volume of our preoccupations, our habits, our busyness. I think in Chinese calligraphy, the symbol for busyness translates as heart-killing. Now, busyness is not about the many responsibilities that we all have in our lives. We all do have responsibilities that we're asked to attend to, care for. Busyness is not about the number of responsibilities we have in our lives. Busyness, in my understanding, is a state of mind. Because you see, even on a retreat, you can get busy, can't you? <laughs> I mean, you have hardly any responsi- we have hardly any <laughs> responsibilities here. And we can be busy the whole day. And we start to see how much it's a state of mind. It's like if we took this bell and we stuffed it full. Of, of cotton, of towels, or whatever, you know what? It wouldn't ring. There would just be this dull sound. It wouldn't be able to ring. And sometimes our minds and our hearts are actually caught in this state of busyness as a habit pattern. It's interesting, recently I was reading one of these endless surveys that are done about the most universal death Deathbed regrets. I think we can almost see them already, can't we? Can we almost see them already? I wish that I had cared more. I wish that I had made more space for those that I love. I wish that I'd found more joy and been able to appreciate more. I wish I'd done less. Thomas Merton once said, (coughs) he said, to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything is to to succumb to the violence of our times. This is a great challenge in lay life. You know, it's a great challenge in lay life where the possibilities of doing are endless, where so many voices call upon us to do more when our heart tells us to stop more and to be still more, where there's so much pressure to become someone, to become something, to accomplish more, to perform as measures of our worthiness. We need to be so mindful of the effect of all of that, those voices, upon our own hearts and minds. Because joy requires our capacity to rest. Joy asks for some stillness in our lives so that we can listen, so that we can respond wisely, that we can be able to touch, to listen, to see, to be wholehearted. And yet in this life, we are the only ones who can cultivate the conditions in which joy can plant its roots. The shape of our life does indeed mostly reflect the shape of our mind. And the shape of our mind very much gives birth to the shape of our life. We can be filled with preoccupations and obsessions and plans and projects. We can hear the ongoing hum to our minds of what Stephen Levine once referred to as the unfinished symphony, which may never be finished. There's so much to think about, so much we can be agitated about, so much we can be anxious about. There are so many stories we can tell about everyone and everything and about ourselves. What is this practice is teaching us is that none of this is a life sentence. None of this is a terminal condition. That we can learn to empty some of the fullness, that we can learn to calm, we can learn to cultivate stillness. It's not an easy practice, but it is a practice of the moment. And the size of the task is only ever equal to the size of the moment. That's a relief. We're learning to liberate the moment, learning to calm the moment, learning to befriend the moment. Learning to cultivate joy in the moment. We're learning to listen to the story of our mind and our body, to stand amidst the, ca- the chaos, to stand amidst the fullness. The wondrous thing I think about joy is we don't actually have to wait. We don't have to wait for the difficult to be over, we don't have to wait for the perfect conditions to find joy. We don't have to even wait for the sadness to go away or our thoughts to stop. Joy, like all the other qualities of the Brahma Viharas, is a relational quality. How are we present with sadness? How are we present with obsession? How are we present with preoccupation? How are we present with sorrow or with fear? Do we struggle, do we argue, do we try to overcome, do we try to avoid, or do we learn to listen so carefully to the life of this heart, the life of this mind and body, and begin actually to know we can pause and we can stop, and sometimes we only even need to step outside and look at the silhouettes of the trees surrounded by space. Sometimes we only need to step outside and just for a moment to pause and just listen to the birds as they sing, to feel the body of our breathing and to see the flow of events in this life arising and passing and know that this sadness too, this sorrow too, this fear too, is part of a whole arising and passing. And part of it is really understanding and knowing we never were in charge of all of this. We never were the conductor of the orchestra. We never were the pilot in the cockpit. We are learning now that we are not helpless. We're learning we're not helpless. We're learning our capacity to cultivate, to illuminate, to awaken the world. I just really encourage you just to see this on a very basic level. Go out on your walking path outside and walk up and down with a mind filled with preoccupation and obsession and plans and projects and come back in and realize you have not been touched by a single thing. You could have been anywhere. Go outside in that same walking path with a mind and a heart that's truly willing to be present and to see how that illuminates the moment through your willingness, through your intention. And in that illuminating of the moment, of course, what we bring into being is our capacity to be touched, the capacity for gladness, the capacity for appreciation. When we look carefully at our own mind and heart, we see it is not life that stifles joy, but there are two primary tendencies within our lives, within our minds and hearts that do have the capacity to suffocate joy. One of them is fairly obvious. It is the tendency towards obsession. And in my understanding, the other tendency that suffocates joy is the tendency towards craving because both have a common thread of agitation. With obsession, we turn inwardly and we become uh, a prisoner of emotionally driven, repetitive thought patterns. We contract an obsession, we see it, and our world becomes smaller and smaller and agitation dominates. Agitation rules consciousness and indeed our lives. With craving, we do something different. We turn outwardly or we lean forward, always seeking the poor cousins of joy. Seeking the substitutes of joy. Not denying sensual pleasure, but turning sensual pleasure into the craving for sensual pleasure we want. And we can live in a state of wanting. And to live in a state of wanting is to live in a state of discontent. And to live in a state of discontent and insufficiency, the belief in insufficiency, Is to truly stifle joy in the moment. And so what we do with that discontent is lean forward. You know, we lean forward imagining the better moment, the better experience, the better sitting, the future walking, you know, the better relationship, the future mind that always just seems to be that one step away. There is no gladness in craving. If the work of metta is to uproot aversion, the work of compassion is is to allow us to meet sorrow and pain without fear. I think the work of compassion is to calm the agitation of craving, to be able to stop amidst the surges of discontent, stop amidst the surges of insufficiency, stop amidst the surges of obsession that only lead to more obsession, and to learn to be still, to find our feet, to take our seat. It may seem an impossible task, but it is not. To be able to stop and to ask ourselves, where is the calmness? Where is the joy in this moment? Rumi again once said today like every other day we wake up empty and frightened don't open the door to the study and begin reading take down a musical instrument let the beauty we love be what we do there are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground hundreds of ways to stop to listen, to pause, and to taste the possibility of joy in this moment. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.